Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present in help and trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose stream makes glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is, is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes wars, he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks his bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Thanks, Tracy. Well, good morning, Gateway. Good morning, you may be seated. <clears throat> It's great to be here this morning, and um, you know, we read, we uh, sang this morning, uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and um, that is actually a hymn written by uh, Martin Luther, and um, it's actually has been, you know, interpreted, it's not German, it's actually in English, but it was originally written by Martin Luther. And I want to give you a little bit of context in how that was actually, that song came about, because it adds a little bit to it, so when you sing it next time, you can kind of get a little bit more. As we know, context really helps us understand. It was uh, 1527, one of the most trying years of Luther's life. On April 22nd, a dizzy spell forced Luther to stop preaching in the middle of his sermon, you know how difficult that could be. And for 10 years, since publishing the 95 Theses on, um, the, on All Saints Day, Luther had been sort of pelted by, polit by political, theological storms, and at times his very life was in danger. And now he was battling other reformers inside the camp over the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Was it the actual body and blood of Jesus? Was it just a symbol? There were all types of concerns and questions over the Lord's Supper. And to Luther, their errors were as of great as those of Rome. Right? It, was, it was the very gospel that seemed to be at stake for Luther. And Luther was deeply disturbed, and he was angry, and he suffered incredible, severe depression. This is April. Then on July, July 6th, friends arrived for dinner, Luther felt an intense buzzing in his left ear. He went to lie down and he suddenly called out, water or I'll die. He became cold and he was convinced he had seen his last night. In a loud prayer, he surrendered himself to God's will. With the doctor's help, Luther partially regained his strength, but this depression and illness overcame him again in August and September and December. And looking back, this is what he says, looking back on one of his bouts, he, he wrote to his friend, he said, I spent more than a week, 
More than a week in death and hell, my entire body was in pain, and I still tremble, completely abandoned my Christ. I labored under the vacillations and storms of desperation and blasphemy against God, but through the prayer of the saints, through his friends, God began to have mercy on me and pulled my soul from the inferno below. Meanwhile, in August, the plague erupts in Wittenberg, where he was. Fear spread, the townspeople leave, but Luther considered it his duty to remain with the sick. Even though his wife was pregnant again, and Luther's house was transformed into a hospital, and he watched many friends die in his own home, his son became ill. Not until late November did the epidemic sort of begin to recede and people began to recover. And during that horrific year, this is 1527, Luther took time, this is 10 years after the 95 Theses have been posted. He said this, the only comfort against raging Satan is that we have God's word to save the souls of believers. Sometime that year, Luther ex expanded that thought into the hymn he is most famous for. Today is a mighty fortress is our God. So I, I um, you know, chances are you and I, we don't really have those types of severe trials of the same severity, but we do have them, right? But it doesn't take sort of a small string of trials sort of added one on top of the other to sort of shake our foundation on our rock of faith or, or even our trust in God's sovereignty. You know, uh, add a few of these following together. You know, just recently, uh, this Pew survey came out that talked about Christians' belief and their eroding beliefs in what, we, what are clear biblical things. Add some of these together. When, the extent, when your extended family is questioning your adherence to Scripture, thinking maybe that you're a legalist or maybe you're, you're too strict on that Bible, or your children have walked away from the faith and you should so get with the times, or, or your work, personally, your work is asking you to compromise and, quote, celebrate things that God has said are wrong in the name of diversity and inclusion. And your parents have discussed the benefits of physician-assisted suicide if they become ill, right? They have become enraptured with a local guru in Marin and are spending their life savings on a transcendental meditation studio, Right? You probably have similar scenarios or, or things that you would describe as trials, right? And the aim of our text this morning is when trials come, we are to remember what he is, what God is, where he is, and what he will do. And Martin Luther said this about this psalm. He said, we sing this psalm, so you know it's a song, right? That's important, right? And this is what was sung, and when Martin Luther would experience trials, he would say, let's sing the 46th Psalm again. So Martin Luther said this, we sing this Psalm to the praise of God because God is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends his church and his word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil and against all the assaults of the world, the flesh and sin. Now Rod asked me a few weeks ago if I would teach on this, on this psalm and everyone's been given a psalm and you don't realize this, our series is called uh, Looking for a King. That's what we've been doing in 1 Samuel. It's called Looking for a King. Well, in this psalm, we have found our king and um, the king, the first, first thing is the king is with us. That's verse one. 
And, and we're going to talk about where David places his hope. We're going to go ahead and actually just see what it says and how this really parallels with what we've been reading and studying in 1 Samuel. You know, we look at 1 Samuel and then we look at the Psalms to help us understand what, what, what else was going on in David's life. Well, now we're going to be looking at a psalm and maybe even looking at the context of what David was going through to understand how he could write this psalm. You know, what was going on in his life? There is not a specific time period in here in, in this psalm, so there's not something specific like we had um, in, in times where he was actually, um, like with o, um, Doeg, our, our favorite guy from 1 Samuel. So this is what we learned is that verse one says, God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. You know, God is our refuge, not our armies or our fortresses. And, and we, he says we don't need to fear because he is with us. Now, if you could turn in your Bible real quick, Deuteronomy 4. <clears throat> you know, for those of you that are doing the Robert Murray McShane reading plan, I find amazing is how often the McShane plan fits with whatever's being preached. And I, I didn't do this on purpose, but this morning was Deuteronomy 4. This is, what, this is what Moses says when he's telling the people. This is what he says in verse 7. He says, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? We don't need to fear because he is with us. And over and over in Scripture, he reminds us that he, he is with us. You know, David would study the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And if you could also now look at Exodus. So if you think about these, these, these books of the Bible that we have, that David had at least the first five, David studying and meditating on God's word. You look at Exodus 13. And we're looking for examples of how could David say that God is with us, right? Look at, look at Exodus 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, for God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, listen to this, he understands just how frightened they could be, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Egypt, according to all of the Israelites, was shelter and it was safe but God wanted something else but God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle and then move to verse 21 and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. A visible manifestation that God is with these people. God understands how frightened they are because if you just, we're gonna move to the next chapter in verse, verse, chapter, verse five in Exodus and you'll see how frightened these people can be. And you see their response and you go, oh, I understand. Look at verse five. It says, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants were changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? They forgot how good of workers they were or something. 
So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. We're gonna see this image over and over again later on in this chapter in, in, in Psalm 46. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped at the sea by Piharoth in front of Baal Zephon. So what does this image look like? You've got all these Israelites leaving defiantly and then you've got, oh no, here comes the army on these chariots and these men that are armed to the hilt. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and they probably had reason to be afraid. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, that's a wonderful people, these people, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? This is a great, a mom must have said this, right? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Didn't I tell you? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. They want to go back to slavery. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. That's what they want. They want their slavery. And you would think this is absolutely crazy. But here we are, thousands of years later, we can look at it. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. This sounds like verse 10. So here are the Israelites crossing the Red Sea or getting close to, and you get all of this stuff and they're just totally afraid because here come the Egyptians. So my question for you with just this is that if God is our refuge and our strength in a time of trouble, you know, when we are going through troubles, do we look back at times in the past where God has sovereignly worked and demonstrated his sufficiency, do we look back on those times? Or do we just worry about right now and all we can see is the problem in front of us, right? The question to answer is, what is he, right? If our aim is to find out what he is, he is our refuge now, not just when things are hard or challenging, and not, not just when David wrote the psalm, right? Or the Israelites were crossing the Red Sea, or when Luther penned the song, but now and in the future. I think about all the other refuges, right, that we've actually seen either in scripture or just in life, the things that we have tried to hold on to that may sort of fall by the wayside, anything that would give us like a worldly hope that it will save us from our present circumstance. Those are not, those are not gonna hold up if they're not based in God. They will fail. God alone is our very present help, more present than the trouble itself. And you think, well, how can this be? You see, in, in verse 1 to 3 of Psalm 46, the, the, the dominant image is of, of God not sitting back, sort of as that watchmaker, right? Uninvolved in the circumstances or the details of our lives. He is a very present help. 
He is sovereign even through like earthquakes or mudslides or raging seas, as we'll see. He is our refuge and our strength. You and I, we can compare ourselves to the Israelites looking at the Egyptians coming after us, right? And there we are, and there's the Red Sea, and what are we gonna do? And the sound of thundering troops. And what's our response? You brought us here to die, Moses. Why didn't you just let us serve the Egyptians? Or, or were we gonna just die here in the wilderness? Now, if you read your Bible at any point in time, you'll notice that, that the Israelites have all kinds of reasons that they point the finger and blame Moses. Why did you do this? Why, why? <clears throat> I was told many years ago that staring at the problem or focusing on the problem is not going to make the problem go away, right? Because the solution, which is God, looks nothing like the problem, right? And that's what verse two through six is gonna actually show us, is that the solution is that the king is coming again. We're gonna come back to this verse seven and 11, so don't worry about it in your notes. I haven't skipped anything. Number two is the king is coming again. It doesn't say, but he is coming again. We just talk about this. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. So the first one is that we will not fear in the face of earthly destruction, verse two and three. You know, living in California, I'm assuming that most of you have been through a major earthquake. Is there anyone who has not been through a major earthquake? Okay, well, in Northern California, you always reference Loma Prieta, right? That was 88, 89, something like that. I just remember watching it on television and the giants and the A's, right? Or if you're from Southern California like me, you think of uh, Northridge, 1994, January 17th. I knew where I was. I was in the Kelso Valley. I was sleeping on the ground in a tent, and um, I had to drive through Northridge in order to be able to get to home. But most of us have been through some pretty significant earthquakes, right? And people who have gone through earthquakes, they say they don't know of anything else that makes a human being feel quite so helpless, right? With an earthquake, where do you go to? Right? Do you go into the hallway? I've been told it doesn't work any longer. So what I learned as a kid, it's, it's gone. You don't go into the hallway. You don't go into a doorway. Apparently it's not strong enough or something. That's what I've been told. You don't cover yourself. So if I was in, in, in Houston or in, in hurricane country, you don't cover in the bathtub like you do. That's what you have to do if you're in a hurricane. You go into um, the, the bathtub and, and cover your neck. You don't run out of a building because the building might collapse on top, on top of you, right? There's no place to go that's really ultimately safe, right? And so David builds on this example of an earthquake and he says, though the earth gives way. Or, or what about mountains moving into the heart of the sea? What about a huge mudslide capable of moving an entire mountain? Can you imagine Mount Diablo going into the bay? They just can't imagine it, right? The closest thing maybe many, any of us have ever seen is when you see those National Geographic movies where the side of a glacier comes off and actually just sort of goes into the heart of the sea. 
massive flooding where the waters are roaring and foaming. If anybody surfed, I surfed in junior high and high school. If you've ever been at the base of like a huge wave, it seemed huge, it's probably like two feet, but it seemed huge at the time. But um, it's you have this massive wall of sound and you are just helpless to it. It is so much more powerful and so bigger than you, right? And the psalmist, David, lists what would seem like the greatest displays of earthly power. And yet he says, at the beginning of verse two, we will not fear. How in the world does he say it? We just think about this. Let's put this in current, current headlines from this week. <clears throat> just think about how similar these things are for us to relate to, even to this psalm. A month after quake, Nepal struggles to return to normal. You know, a lot of the people on Mount Everest died because of falling debris. A powerful quake strikes off Japan. This was just yesterday morning, right? And then he talks about the, the waters raging. No tsunami warning. How about this one? Just this week, my colleagues in Houston, Texas faces more rain and flash flooding. Right? And how about this one from the entertainment world? San Andreas, the movie, rocks Friday box office with 18.2 million. Right, I know that's kind of like, we will actually go and pay to watch something destroyed. It's a little perverse, but we do. <laughs> Apparently it did really well this week, and, but anyway. But so we have all these things, right, that happen in our daily life, and, and David writes of these things, right? We get to see sometimes through video and all of this other media files that we get to see watch these things happen. But he's, he's got it here, and, and he says, listen, let's, let the worst thing you can happen imagine and the people of God will not stop trusting God. That is outlandish, right? And David makes a statement in verse one, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And then he has these implications to the statement. That's verse two, right? Therefore we will not fear though the earth gives, though the earth gives way and the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. And I just wonder with God near us, why would we fear? It's illogical with God near us, yet, yet we are distracted with what's going on around us, right? And he is greater than all the events that would make for like a worldly disaster. And if God is our refuge, scripture says we will not fear over and over and over again in scripture, God tells us not to be afraid. Now I do wanna point something out. At the end of verse three in your um, in your Bible, he's got something called a, a selah, right? And um, there's some sort of debate as a translation of what this really means, but I kind of want to, this is an important piece because it's an important part to the song, right? And um, this psalm, it comes, it comes three times at the conclusion of each stanza. And, and it's meant to be a break and, and a moment of rest to sort of retune the instruments if they were playing instruments that got out of tune quickly. Or, and for the hearers to sort of pause and meditate on what they just heard. So, so let's just rest just for a moment before we look at the next verse because the Selah was placed intentionally by David there at the, at the break of each stanza just so that we can pause and, and David gives, he gives the singers the psalm of the psalm to a breath to rest and he says, look, as the earthquakes and the mountains move and the waters rage, let's just kind of take a step back 
It's a challenge for all of us to sort of pause when things get sort of crazy busy, right? At the end of the school year, when all the kids are graduating and everything's kind of coming and things are very busy, when circumstances have piled on top, one on top of the other, he says, well, let's take a moment in between the crises to recognize that God is presently at work and he has not moved, right? He has not distanced himself from his people. The next image that we see, this is verse four through seven, I just want to point it out, is, is, is God in, and um, David describes a city with a river, right? And the, and the city is immovable. This is all just from here, right? She shall not be moved. And, and you get this picture that though everything around the city is, is rising and falling, the city of God, which is Zion, is not going anywhere, right? In fact, God has chosen it to be his sanctuary, where his people will meet with him and will worship him at the river and where they will be restored and rejuvenated and given strength. So you've got this sort of thing in the middle of town, right, that is this holy habitation, is what scripture calls it. Verse four, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved God will help her when the morning dawns. You see, and so I say God is coursing through the city and he is undisturbed by everything that's going on around her, right, around him. And the city of God geographically is Jerusalem. And if you look with me at Psalm 87, another chapter that was for this morning, am I doing a good enough job of promoting the Robert Murray McShane Bible reading plan? Um, Psalm 87, right? We see this is actually... um, describing the city of Zion and the love God has for the city of Zion. It says this, just verse one through three, he says, on the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. So we have this image. The Lord loves Zion. This is the capital of God's people, the city God founded, and the gates that he loves, right? Mount Zion was the place where the temple was going to be, right? Mount Zion was the place where the tabernacle, a habitation of the Most High was going to be. And and you realize that as far as the Old Testament people are concerned, this was the site of the city of God. It had special meaning, right? Much beyond... Well, David talks about a river that is making the city of God glad. So we think about, well, where else in scripture does it talk about this river, right? Can we get a little bit more information on this, right? If, if scripture sort of informs what we understand about the Psalms and Psalms is under, helping us understand the rest of scripture, if you could turn with me to Ezekiel 47, it's to the right, Ezekiel 47. So just to give you a little bit of background, so Ezekiel, um, in these later chapters, he actually has this vision, right? And this is um, a vision of what the future temple would be like. And so in this section of scripture, Ezekiel is talking about what he is seeing. And he's got this water that's flowing from the temple. And it starts as a trickle, but becomes a powerful river at the end. 
So listen to this. Now he's going along um, with his guide and he's measuring every place, right? So it's a little bit dull, but this is important. It says this, then he brought me back to the door of the temple and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from the south end of the threshold of the temple. Can you imagine this and think about this and under your house, you've got like water coming out of the foundation. It should be of concern, right? Well, it gets worse, right? Or it gets better. The south of the altar. Then he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out of the south side. This is not a California problem, right? With drought. This is a serious problem with water. There must be something to this. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then he led me through the water and it was ankle deep. So what started out as a trickle is now ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and he led me through the water and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? It would be impossible to avoid. And verse 6 through 12 talks about what are the healing properties of this life-giving river, right? You think he's talking about something else, right? It's not just going to help. It's going to affect the entire world. And look at verse 12, as I think you'll see this later on in Revelation. He says, and on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. There is something about the harmony of scripture that's just phenomenal the more you get into it and how things sort of relate to one another. The river of God that flows in the city of God is, is a picture of the activity of the spirit of God jump towards Jesus' time in John chapter seven. Jesus says this, you don't have to turn to there if you don't want. If anyone thirsts, let him come to, drink, to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John explains this verse in verse 39. He says, now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. So the picture of this river, according to the interpretation of the New Testament, is a picture of the activity of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is this means of grace that flows from the heart of the believer. So now let's go to Revelation, to the culmination of the river. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. Remember those? Yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree, here it is, were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. So this is the fullness of the glorious temple from Ezekiel, 
right? The healing of the nations will be completed sort of in the destruction of death. Letter C is, he will always help them and always has. So if we've got God coursing through and he's undisturbed, right, and he's always helping them and he always has, here he is in the morning, right, his outstretched arm to protect his people. The image that Rod gave us not too long ago was this image of of a hen caring for her chicks, right, and here we have this. He is always going to help them and always has. He has consecrated his people by being among them, right? He has dedicated them for a special purpose and he will always help them. And and you and I, and we, we look at sort of the apparent delays of God, right? And we wonder if he heard the cry of our hearts as if, as if God is slow at responding, right? And, but we need to see his timing for what it is, right? In talking about salvation, 2 Peter 3, 9 says, you know, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Our timing and God's timing are totally different, right? He is outside of our little minute worldly timing. In our impatience, right, we want the king to come on our timetable because it suits our desires and what we want and maybe our circumstances. In verse six, David says, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. What an incredible contrast, right? Between the power of the world, you know, what man has done, what man did, and the power of God, what God did, right? We have nations sort of raging against the city of God. So we go back to, to Psalm 46, we, that nations are raging against the city of God, thinking that their sort of human might is any match for the God of heaven. And kingdoms are tottering on collapse, right? We see this. It doesn't take us long. We just can peer behind the scenes sometimes after the fact about what was happening. Beyond the propaganda, beyond the sort of the well-rehearsed scripts and speeches, and we can see, you know, confusion abounding, sort of in a quagmire of sin and deceit. And then we have God. This is after the semicolon. He utters his voice similar to how Jesus sort of, his voice calmed the storm and the wind obeyed, right? We have God, the very thing, this earth melting upon God's voice, right? The very thing we consider to be most trustworthy, right? Terra firma, right? Earth, salt of the earth, right? Melts like the wax of a candle. You and I, we we put all kinds of faith in, in the nation, in our economic strength or or the mighty dollar, or what's in our bank account, or what's not in our bank account, right? In our house. But see, God utters his voice, and the earth melts. And and we speak as if nothing is ever gonna change. But David says, we will not fear when the world collapses, because it is God who utters his voice. And David goes back, he goes back to verse seven, And he says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. And this is the reason for all that the city of God has to be secure is because of the Lord of hosts being with them, right? The Lord rules the angels and the stars and the elements and all of the hosts of heavens. 
and the heaven of heavens are under his authority. You know, such awe, right? So David goes through seven verses, right? And he wants to remind us, guess what? The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He is reinforcing everything he said in verse four through six. All the nations that we see today, right? Even though they may not realize it, they are sovereignly doing the will of God, right? Jacob's God is our stronghold. Right, we've seen that again and again in 1 Samuel when we think things are happening and you know what, God is not, it's not working out and yet God in his sovereignty, whatever the circumstances may be, he is working his will amidst incredible chaos. I just think about, we may not be able to see it as we watch the 10 o'clock news, right? Or hear of the news reports of yet another town overtaken by ISIS or another video showing a bunch of Christians being executed on the shores of the sea. And David says, let's finish the second stanza. Let's pause again and rest in the fortress of the God of Jacob. The Lord of hosts who is not distant, but with us. So he is focusing the people's eyes on God, not on the problems. In verse 8 through 11, we have another sort of image that God is, is speaking to the nations. And it, it's, it's not just speaking to the nations, it's declaring to the nations what will happen. He is not saying, hey, this might happen or this could happen someday, possibly. Right? He is saying, this will be. In fact, this will be, I will be exalted among the nations and the earth. It's actually um, Isaiah 6, 1 to 4, that we actually sang this morning. When you look at, I just find this image of God so amazing, right? And Isaiah is just, just undone, right? That's verse six, he's undone. Verse five, he's undone, but in verse one he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And listen to this, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And then of course Isaiah is absolutely undone in the presence of God, right? <clears throat> so, if we go to the next, next thing, we, see, we come and see what the king will do. So God is not done, obviously. He's not done. But this is what he says in verse eight. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. It's not right, but I'll give you the fill-ins. How's that? So when we think about this, right, David writes, this is the letter A of the fill-in is the works of the Lord, if you're following along. But David writes that through the desolations on earth, God is establishing the kingdom of God, right? The works of the Lord are included. Maybe it's, you know. Well, the top part is right. So letter A should be the works of the Lord. That's what you have on your outline, right? Okay, so it's the works of the Lord. <clears throat> the works of the Lord include all the acts 
of God in the history of salvation. You think about in David writing this, right? He's talking about the Exodus, right? The conquests, maybe in the period of judges and the monarchy. And, and verse eight draws people's attention to his care and his protection and his providential rule. He's focusing not on the things they're afraid of, because there will always be things that we're afraid of, right? But he is focusing our attention upon God. It's amazing, I find, that when you come into to church in the morning and, and you're worshiping God, that the things that sort of concern you before you got here can slip away. And you just worship God, right? And let those things melt away. And David says, we're invited to go and see what is left of the enemies of God. That's a pretty incredible image. Especially if there has been a time of great deliverance, right, as a reminder that we will deliver his people again. God will deliver his people again, once and for all. You think about this, something through the Old Testament is fascinating for the people of Israel to constantly remember what God has done. Right, and to, to teach your children about the things that happen. Remember this, and remember this, right? We go through Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It was just remembering what God did. What happens when we remind ourselves of what God has done when he's delivered his people? The one thing that comes to mind is we're reminded that he's faithful, right? And he, is, he has always fulfilled his promises, and I just ask this question, do we think about the desolations of earth, things that just, catastrophes of earth, or even the things that happen to us personally, you know, make this more personal. And, and do we remind ourselves that the Lord is coming soon? Are we still caught up in the problems? Are, are we filled with despair and, and think, where is the Lord when something like fill in the blank happens? It could be Nepal. It could be, you, you could be in the city of Houston and your whole house is flooded. And we get really trapped in the circumstances and we're focusing on the circumstances. This is horrible, this is, this is terrible, why is it happening? And David says, you know, you need to focus on God because one day, you know, God will come again. The king will come. And so let's look at what they did. So um, what if we have a health scare? Right, what happens when that happens? What do we think of? Are, are, are we quick to see his so sovereign hand in that? Or, or are we just worried about, well, you know what, I'll think about God's sovereignty once that has, has passed me by. But what happens if it doesn't? Do we focus on the fact that the king will be coming soon? Do we preach to ourselves every day, every day that the Lord tarries is one day closer to his return? Do we think upon that and meditate on that and preach to ourselves that message? Verse nine says, he makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters a spear. He burns the chariots with fire. The fill-in is there will be an end. There will be an end to the wars. David says, God will make war cease. And, and this is the way he's gonna do it, right? So we, re we read that stuff from Exodus. Think about this, he's gonna break the bow, right? They didn't have guns, so he will break the bow. He will shatter the spear, 
Remember the spear that actually was thrown at him from Saul? And he will burn the chariot with fire. Right? The weapons of war will no longer be the weapons of war. Right? The dread and fear of the chariot by foot soldiers will one day have its end. Right? You read in Joshua eleven six, God tells Joshua to burn the chariots with fire. Right? In Psalm 27, David says that some trust in chariots, right? Someone hear this song. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But what do we do? We trust in the name of the Lord our God. The chariots at the time were almost sort of objects of superstitious fear. You just think about that. It's like it's an F-22, like fighter jet. For those of you who like fighter jets, F-22, most amazing, right, fighter jet that the, that the U.S. has, right? But these things were it. The chariots were those things, were the F-22s of the time, the sound of the wheels, right, the noise of the horse's hoofs, and, and the shaking of the ground thundered along, and it scared the Israelites, Ed read this morning about Revelation 21, 1 to 6. Just think about how much greater, right, will our joy be when the cause of our distress is no more. We need to focus on that. And verse tells us to, it says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So letter C is, is, is pursue godliness and distinguish yourself in how you respond. Your character is evinced in how you respond to trials. But it doesn't happen in the moment of trial. It happens long before. When you think of being still, let's just sort of look at some of these things. I don't, I'm not a still person. Anybody knows me, I like to do stuff all the time. I sit still very few times. And what do you think of when you think of someone says, you know what, be still. Is that sort of like sitting in contemplation? I am not a contemplator. And is being still a passive activity to you? <clears throat> Before I was a Christian, I had a mentor who said I should stare at a candle in meditation. I almost burned my house down. Uh, <laughs> I did because I fell asleep and the candle was still lit. Don't do that. That's, it's, it's not godly. <laughs> it's the world, but that's really what I did. <clears throat> so the intent of this be still, I want to be sure that you understand this, is, is to stop doing one thing, right, in favor of doing something else. Sound familiar? Like put off and put on, right? <clears throat> so let's just go to Second Chronicles. Right. I know this is a lot of scripture, but I think this really kind of helps us inform this. When he talks about being still. Second Chronicles chapter 20, and verse 15. So there's this priest, Jehaziel, right? <clears throat> and he's talking to Jehoshaphat. And um, he is actually describing something that is about to happen. And he says this in verse seven, 15. He says, and he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, so we should pay attention, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. 
you know, Judah thought, hey, look, I am going to, the people of Judah thought, I'm going to actually, we're going to have to fight these people. But God said, the battle is not yours, it's mine. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jerel. You will not need to fight in this battle. What does he say? Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. It's, it's not Judah's part, is not to take up arms, but to exercise faith and offer prayer and praise for what God is about to do. You know, we as Christians need to sort of put on the full armor of God as it talks about in Ephesians 6 and stand firm in the faith. Instead of sort of choosing a negative option, right, we should pursue sort of godliness and distinguish ourselves in how we actually respond to trials so that other people can glorify God in our response. What about this knowledge of God? Know that I am God. What does that mean? It includes a factual knowledge about him. His past acts, his current promises, right? This is not a questioning of God for, for why he has done the things that he's done, but an unceasing pursuit of the things of God. Where my life is colored by this, by the people of God, right? I haven't forsaken fellowshipping with the body of believers, by his word, right? And an abiding trust in his sovereignty, my life of faith needs to be lived continually in a commitment to God's sovereignty. Right? His rule and his exaltation. Because he says it there in verse 10. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Right? Think about this. Jonathan Edwards says this about this very passage. He says, you know, God is able. But also, he is able to avenge himself on those who oppose his sovereignty. And that is a humble thing. How much do I oppose his sovereignty and complain about how he has arranged circumstances in my life not to my liking or the things may be difficult or challenging or the things that I talked about in the beginning when I have to actually celebrate the inclusion and diversity. What am I supposed to do? God, I don't like this. The declaration is that he will be exalted among the nations and the earth. It's not sort of this sheepish, sort of maybe. My question is, do we see him as able to avenge himself? Or, or do we look at the seemingly like victory of, in the world and, and the march of depravity and, and wonder, where is this king that we're supposed to trust in that is supposedly with us? Well, he says this, I will be exalted among the nations. The whole earth about this, the whole earth one day will reflect his majesty and every knee will bow, willingly or unwillingly. And I have forgotten it. In my haste to try to arrange my life to more of my way of liking, right, I forget that the God of the universe is still on his throne. And he has not moved. This, this chapter says he is immovable. And scripture invites me to come and to see what the king will do. Let's see if we can go to this. So we go back to verse 11. And, and, and this is obviously um, 
David puts this in here because it's, it's forgotten so quickly. Verse 11, the, the Lord of hosts is with us. This is the same verse as verse seven. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So the king is with us. This is another reminder, right, that the king is with us. One more time. It, it's a fact that must be repeated and preached to ourselves over and over again. This is not just for people who are hearing it in David's time during times of trial, right? Fast forward, right, to the coming of Jesus. Matthew 1, 23. What does he say where the, the Messiah is will be called what? Emmanuel, right? And what does that mean? God with us. And as Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus is the personification of this psalm. For Jesus is himself our present refuge and our future victory. So you think about this. Even if the unthinkable should occur, even if the, quote, big one, right, should split California in two, somewhere between, in Bakersfield somewhere, right, it should split California in two, what would happen? God's faithfulness to his promises should drive away our fears. That should be our response right? It's not that we don't have fears, right? But we have faith and trust despite our fears. And, and our pull to the flesh, to sort of worldly cares, should weaken, right? They should have less of a hold on us. Our, our confidence as Christians, right, should be steady as we progress in our sanctification and Christ-likeness. Matthew 28, 20. Right? Christ personally promised to be with us to the very end of the age. It's an incredible verse at the end of Matthew, right? The beginning of Matthew, the first chapter, he talks about Emmanuel, God with us, and all the way through the end, he says, I will be with you to the very end of the age. And like a river, right, that flows beneath the surface, right, God's grace convinces the psalmist and us that the church who we are now will not only survive any onslaught, but also will do it with joy. Jesus specifically revealed in John 7 that the Holy Spirit is that sort of, that means of grace, right, that causes rivers of living water to flow from the heart of the believer. All the kingdoms of this world will one day become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Can you imagine the list? I don't know how many nations there are, but every one of those will bow to the King Jesus. Of course, sort of David would end with sort of a, a, another salah, telling the reader or the, or the singer, he says, lift up your heart and be comforted in contemplating your God, right? He is your help in time of trouble. We can see why Martin Luther would say, he is our mighty fortress, and listen to this from Luther's hymn that we sang this morning. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Father God, 
we are um, humbled at your word that you are an incredibly powerful God and I just repent for minimizing you God for making you less than what you say you are in your scripture God we know that you will be exalted among the nations and you will be exalted in the earth God may we do that with our lives this week and that we would sing your glory and your renown and point to you. God, some people trust in chariots and horses. May we trust in you, God, with our very lives. God, thank you for sending your son Jesus to be among us, God with us, Emmanuel. Thank you that he died on the cross for our sins because there are many, God, many, many sins. And we are so grateful for the payment and the wrath that he bore upon himself upon the cross and then he rose again. God, may we um, lift Jesus high as the king who has come and who is with us now. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, Lord, that convicts us of sin and causes us to repent and to return to you, God, and become more like your son. In your name we pray, amen.